I wonder how you would answer if I were to ask you the question, how involved is God in your life right now? How involved is God in your life right now? Uh, if you were to give it a rating, one being hardly at all, ten being uh, to the max, what number do you think you would uh, level it as? I'm sure that if I took a poll, I would get a wide range of numbers. Uh, I think there would be people in this room, most likely, uh, who would say, you know, I just don't really feel like God is that involved in my life right now. And then I'm sure there are others who would feel uh, like daily. They feel the presence of God. Uh, they feel encouraged. Uh, they feel His mercy new each day. Well, one of the things that I want to convince you of this morning is that for the Christian, the answer to that question is not that subjective. Uh, most of the people answer that kind of question based on how they feel due to the circumstances they're in. But for the Christian, God is active to the fullest extent, even through difficult circumstances. That's one of the main messages that we find uh, in the story of the book of Ruth, uh, which is what we're going to be starting to study this week and for the next number of weeks. Uh, so go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament after the book of Judges. And if you're using one of the pew Bibles uh, or chair Bibles, since we don't have pews anymore, this is what I grew up hearing, uh, pew Bibles. Uh, we have Bibles underneath the chairs. If you're using one of those, you can find our text this morning on page 222, 222. Uh, and let me just say, because I like to say this every now and then, if you're visiting and you don't have a Bible at home that you can read on your own personally, feel free to just take one of the Bibles underneath the chairs as our gift to you. Uh, we believe that God has spoken to us through His Word, uh, and that His Word is authoritative and, and uh, without error in everything He intends to communicate. So we believe He is living and actively speaking to us through His Word, and there's nothing more important, therefore, than for you to have your own copy of God's Word to, to read. Uh, so feel free to take one of those as our gift to you. Well, we have uh, the joy of beginning a new story. We just wrapped up our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and now we turn to the book of Ruth. And, um, you know, though Ruth is often used for uh, women's ministry events, Ruth and Esther, because they are women of the Bible that are good examples of faith, there is a wealth that I think uh, we can all be edified by and encouraged by from the book. Uh, Ruth is a story. That's the first thing you need to know about the book of Ruth. Uh, and it has everything that you could ask for in a story. It is full of suspense, full of romance, sacrifice, commitment, tension, resolution. Uh, there are hero-like figures, and there are antagonist-like figures. Uh, the hero-like figures, they serve as good examples uh, to us. But we need to be careful not to just read the story flatly and just take the positive examples and say we need to be like this, and the negative examples and say we need to not be like this. Uh, that's fine and good advice, but what we need to recognize is that this is a real story in history. Uh, it's more than just a story we as Christians can relate to. It is a piece of history, a series of events that God acted through in the lives of people 
in the past that the Lord used powerfully to accomplish His purposes. It is as true as it is beautiful. And with that in mind, there's a few more things that I would like for you uh, to just think about as we read our sermon text this morning. First, uh, think about the characters. Uh, characters are important in any story, of course. So pay, a, pay close attention to the names that are mentioned. Uh, oftentimes, Ruth and Boaz are uh, painted as the heroes and the main characters. But I think what you'll find as we study through the book uh, is that the story is equally, if not more so, focused on Naomi and the Lord as the primary characters. A second, pay attention to the locations mentioned and the movement of the characters from place to place. I'll speak more about their importance in a little bit. And then thirdly, pay attention to the responses of each character to the situations. Uh, our Savior Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the record of what is spoken tells us what's on the hearts of the characters facing these circumstances. So with all those things in mind, characters, locations, and dialogue, let's read our text together now. I'm going to be reading uh, all of chapter 1. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malhan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malhan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For you, where you go, 
I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Like any story, it begins with a setting. In this story, it's with a family from Bethlehem in Judah that moves away from Bethlehem for about 10 years and then eventually returns. Uh, Naomi's final words in verse 21 tell us what things were like before tragedy struck. She says she went away full, but after some time she returns empty. And the first development of the story is one of great woe and tragedy. As Naomi basically is stripped from a house of protectors and then becomes a lonely widow with no, with only, uh, with no prospects, no heir. She's quite literally, in this way, cut off from her people. Uh, and though there appears to be only despair thus far, there is much we can learn about the Lord's providence in our lives, especially in the midst of difficult circumstances. Uh, John Piper refers to the story of Ruth as one of bitter providence made sweet. Therefore, the book records an instance in history in which the Lord sovereignly worked through bitter circumstances for His glory. And I find that language of bitter providence to be very useful. Uh, So if you want to know what the main idea of this passage is, chapter 1, I would put it this way. The Lord uses bitter circumstances to draw us back into the comfort of His promises. The Lord uses bitter circumstances to draw us back into the comfort of His promises. Uh, My prayer is that the beginning of this story would be a reminder and perhaps even a call for you to return from wandering and to cling to Christ for comfort. Uh, There's three basic movements in this chapter. In verses 1 to 5, Naomi's family goes into Moab, faces death. Verses 6 through 18, Naomi hears there's food and decides to return. And then in verses 19 through 22, Naomi and Ruth arrive back in Bethlehem in time for harvest. And so along with these three movements in the story, I see three lessons for the Christian. And those are going to be my three points. So first, lesson one. To depart from God is to depart from life. To depart from God is to depart from life. Uh, Just to recap again, because there's a lot of names early on, Ruth opens about a man named Elimelech. Uh, He's described in verse 1 as a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, And it's this man's family and therefore inheritance that's at stake in the whole story. Uh, Elimelech is an Israelite. He marries Naomi. 
who is then eventually becomes the mother-in-law of Ruth. So basically, this story is about a family from the same city as Israel's future king, David. And that's likely when the book was written uh, as a historical record because David is mentioned at the end of the book. Uh, but the first verse is just packed with information that, uh, that we need to know about. The first thing we learn is the general time frame of this story. And, and what verse 1 states is that it's during the time of the judges. And that's why Ruth is after judges in the English order of our Old Testament. Um, and the timeline is this. So the history of the people of God. God promises to Abram. Uh, then his people are slaved in Egypt. He rescues them out of Egypt, brings them to the wilderness, makes a covenant with them, uh, then provides for them miraculously in the wilderness before bringing them into the land of promise. Once they're in the land of promise, uh, the Lord uses judges, uh, basically, to rule over the people before there is a monarchy established. So these judges were just leaders. And if you read through the book of Judges, you'll find a reoccurring statement that pretty much sums up what things were like in Israel at that time. Uh, and I'll just tell you it's not good. The line that reoccurs is this, quote, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, these are days of chaos and conflict. And so God judges the land by sending a famine, and it's that famine uh, that causes Elimelech to move his family out of Bethlehem. And there's a little bit of irony about this situation, uh, and especially the historical detail of the city of Bethlehem, because Bethlehem, or Bethlehem, means house of bread, house of food. Uh, symbolically, it's the locus of God's provision over his people by name. It's the city named after the miraculous way that God had provided uh, for the Israelites and carried them through the wilderness supernaturally raining bread from the heavens for them. And in this city, famine strikes. And so what does Elimelech do? Uh, rather than waiting on the Lord to provide more food, miraculously, he decides to look for food elsewhere. Another layer of significance is not only in the name, but the location of Bethlehem, uh, being in the land of Judah, which, uh, of course, is the promised land. It's the land that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, the place where God faithfully and powerfully brought them to be their God and, their, and them, them his people. So a, de a departure from the promised land then is like a departure from the promises of God, where his promises were fulfilled, and a departure, therefore, from God himself. So forget about the way God rained down bread in the wilderness uh, it seems to be what is going through Elimelech's head. There's a famine, so we must move away from the land of promise and go instead to a cursed land. Now, um, this is not necessarily to uh, critique Elimelech's decision. There could have been good reasons. He may have been thinking in the best interest of his family or perhaps to just leave for a temporary time. We don't really know. Uh, we're just looking at the details of the story here. Uh, but did you know that there were no realtors in Israel? There were no realtors. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with realtors. Realtors are great. Uh, but the reason there's no realtors in Israel is because there's no need for them. Uh, and my point in mentioning that is that there is no need for realtors 
because the land was given to them and secured to each family by the Lord himself. Every resident in Israel was given land and was to pass it down their family line, which is why the splitting up of the land is so important. So uh, I understand, for example, and sometimes joke myself about how, um, you know, books like Numbers uh, and uh, maybe uh, Joshua is the place where, you know, reading plans go to die. Because at times they can just feel like a list of names and places and numbers of people. Uh, And that is what they are. Uh, But to the Israelite, uh, these are detailed records of the Lord's faithfulness and his fulfillment of his promises to them. So to leave the land was to walk away from your family's inheritance and from the Lord's provision and uh, thereby the Lord's presence as well. It's to walk away from life itself. Uh, And this is clear because bread represents sustaining life. Therefore, God as provider is giver and sustainer of life. For the people of Israel, the promised land is also the land of rest. Uh, All of these things are lost when left. And yet this native family departs from their home country to a foreign country. And the foreign country they go to (laughs) is Moab of all places. Uh, And if you're like most readers in 2023, uh, that means pretty much nothing to you. Uh, But a little bit of research will show you that the relationship between Moab and Israel was complicated at best. Uh, These were not friendly towards each other. In fact, by my research, I couldn't find a single positive reference to Moab uh, prior to the book of Ruth at this point in time. It's a place that is referred to as the place where uh, people sacrifice their children to their gods. Uh, It's the place that uh, Balaam came from, or where they hired Balaam, rather, to curse Israel. Uh, It is a place of immoral seduction and even incest. Uh, Their ancestry is traced all the way back to uh, a, a tragic event between Lot and his daughters. So Moab is not just another place that the Israelites would go for summer vacation, or they, a place they would have a seasonal home. Uh, this would be like saying, you know, things have been a little tough here in America lately, the economy and inflation and all these things, so I'm going to go and move over to Iran. I think things are going to go well for me over there. Uh, it is a land of strife. It's complicated. Uh, I bring all that up once again to just demonstrate what is at stake here. The place of Bethlehem in Judah is the place of life in God's presence where his people are. We see very clearly just in this first chapter that despite a famine, Bethlehem is is where there is life, eventually where food is brought back to, and Moab, as described by the story, is where death is. The other thing I want to mention is that in the ancient world, there's just no separation between uh, land, a nation, or people, and the God of that land and nation. Um, So to leave Israel is to leave Israel's God. To join Moab is to then submit to Moab's gods and to look to them for provision. And we know that just from reading the chapter, right? In verse 15, Naomi says, Orpah has, quote, gone back to her people and to her gods. And then we see it again in Ruth's response to Naomi in verse 16, where she says, quote, Your people shall be my people and your God 
my God. So what's at stake in the story is not just a change of location, but a change of allegiance. So how can we apply uh, these first five verses to our lives? First, draw near to God through Christ. Draw near to God through Christ. Uh, There was once uh, a time uh, in our society in which if you wanted to make a phone call and you were out in public, uh, you had to go to the street, most likely, and find a box-looking thing on a sign that would have what's called a payphone. And to make a call on this payphone, even a local one, you would have to provide some kind of money to put into it, sometimes go through an operator to get your call uh, made. And then, of course, uh, the longer the distance or the longer the call, the more expense it would be. Uh, That's kind of similar to the way people related to God in the Old Testament in that there was a sacrificial system Uh, a a tribe of priests. So if you wanted to get right with God, you had to make yourself clean and bring a sacrifice to the altar that was then mediated by a priest. But friends, in the New Testament, everything is different with Jesus. Uh, Jesus came and offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, and he himself is our high priest. Uh, So drawing near to God uh, looks much more like just making a phone call on your cell phone today. Unlimited access pretty much anywhere at any time. Uh, We can draw near to God simply by speaking to Him, uh, by studying His Word, listening to Him speak to us uh, in the means that He has provided for us. Uh, God even gives us a promise in James 4, verse 8, that if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. Uh, Another way we draw near to Him, of course, is by worshiping with His people. Uh, We experience the presence of God in a unique way. Uh, When we gather as believers on Sundays to sing and to pray and to read and to hear God's word together. So don't neglect the gathering, as it says in Hebrews. And then don't be surprised if for some reason you feel distanced from God if you have neglected some of these means that he has given to us. Uh, Some authors have called them like channels or avenues of grace that God specifically designs for the believer. Uh, And so naturally, of course, when we remove ourselves from their path, uh, it's no surprise that you might feel uh, distanced from God, so draw near to Him. The message of the gospel is a a beautiful picture and recognition of the way that sin has cut us off from God. Uh, much like the way Elimelech's family removes themselves from the promised land. Our rebellion brings the curse of death. And that's why Jesus says we must be reborn. Uh, That's why Paul says in Ephesians that uh, before Christ we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But the good news is that life comes in the person of Jesus. Uh, He raises us up to life like Lazarus from the grave. Second point of application, uh, seek refuge in the local church. Seek refuge in the local church. Uh, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Uh, So the local church is a God-given fortress of protection for the Christian. Uh, I don't know about you, but I need other brothers and sisters in my life reminding me of God's promises and encouraging me from his word. The, the safe place for sheep is inside the sheepfold. 
Outside is where wolves are, or thieves seek to kill and destroy. That's one of the reasons we recite our church covenant every uh, time we take the Lord's Supper or gather for one of our members' meetings. It's to remind ourselves of just how crucial. We remind ourselves by articulating one another commands in the New Testament. What a crucial part of the life of the believer is inside the community of the local church. Second lesson for the Christian, and this is mainly verses 6 through 18. To return to Christ might cost everything, but it's worth it. To return to Christ might cost everything, but it is worth it. Uh, After losing nearly everything, Naomi is faced with a difficult reality. Uh, She has no husband to provide for her. She has no sons to take care of her as she ages, and no prospects for either. Uh, She's in a foreign land, and she is a woman, uh, which basically means she's totally vulnerable and helpless. Uh, In our society, you know, someone alone, a single male or a single female, uh, could probably make it in the world. They'd be okay. Uh, But not during Ruth's day. Just the reality was she couldn't get an education or work uh, the way Uh, women can today. So she would have been in deep distress. So she says in verse 8, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted their voices and wept. So Naomi makes the difficult decision of basically sending away her daughter-in-laws. She says after 10 years, she doesn't want their fate to be the same as hers. Uh, So she wants them to have a brighter future and and therefore urges them to go to their homeland in Moab. Uh, this, This all happens when Naomi hears that the famine has ceased in Israel. In the words of the author, the Lord had visited his people and given them bread. So Naomi lost everything while she was away. The Lord did not provide for her, but the Lord did visit and provide for the people of Israel. What's interesting about this section is that locationally, it seems to occur in between Israel and Moab, uh, meaning in neither location, uh, in no man's land, in the in-between. So they have a choice to make. Will Naomi go to Moab and try different gods after her experience? Will she return to Israel? And what will her daughters-in-law do? do? Uh, Thankfully for Naomi, the answer is no. Uh, She decides to go back, though she does try to urge her daughters-in-law to go back. uh, And I think that's with the best intentions once again. She explains her own reasons in detail in verses 11 through 13. Uh, But they want to stay with her. Uh, They weep multiple times. She basically says, there's no hope for me. Uh, Therefore, definitely no hope for you if you are with me. I'm finished. She says, do I have sons to give you? I do not. Uh, I'm not even uh, within the age that I could do that, nor do I have a husband. Uh, And she basically says, "Even even if something miraculous happened and I found a husband tonight and conceived this very night, twins for the both of you, would you actually wait around till they were marriageable age? I think the implication, too, is that by that time, they would be beyond childbearing years. Uh, 
uh, it's pretty much looks like a lose-lose situation. And so in verse 13, Naomi says, It's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Uh, and I think there's two incredible things about that statement that she makes. Um, she's mourning for their future, so she says, her concern is for her daughters. It's bitter to me for you. She grieves for her daughters-in-law in addition to herself. But the second amazing thing is that she has no shadow of a doubt that her calamity is the Lord's doing, that it is, in fact, the Lord acting in her life that has brought her to this point. It's His sovereign power that orchestrated it. She doesn't know why or how, at least she doesn't express that, nor does she really express any kind of complaints, but she grieves it. And she seeks to spare her daughters from a grim future. After all, she's got no family to help, and it's uh, unlikely that they would find uh, Israelite husbands because it was actually forbidden to marry from uh, another land. So she urges them twice. They weep twice. And in 14, we read that Orpah leaves, but Ruth clung to Naomi. And that word clung is absolutely crucial. Uh, it's a term that is often used to describe covenant loyalty or covenant faithfulness. It's the very opposite of forsaking. It's, in fact, the same word that is used again and again to describe the Lord's covenant or steadfast love to his people. And her clinging to Naomi clues us into the choice Ruth had to make, the choice to return to Moab or to Bethlehem return to her old people and their gods, or to, with Naomi, to the one true God. And Ruth clinging to Naomi is a beautiful picture of her clinging to the Almighty in the most desperate of situations. Her clinging is given expression in verses 16 and 17. Look, at, look again at those verses. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. There may have been uh, a lot about Moab that seemed attractive. Uh, it's familiar. Uh, she knows people and has family there. But Ruth instead pledges covenant loyalty to Naomi after being urged four times by her to leave. Ruth is the one who I believe makes the spiritual decision in faith. The Israelite first leaves Bethlehem, then tries to prevent her daughter from returning with her. Yet the positive example of faith is not in Naomi but in Ruth. Again and again, the author reminds us, the Moabite from the land of Moab. The Moabite of all people is the shining example of faith in the promises and the goodness of God. And that's a choice she makes despite everything Moab has to offer. She's a God-fearing woman. So Ruth says no to Moab, yes to the Lord, and then she even uses the covenant name Yahweh in verse 17, uh, the, the word I am that God used to reveal himself to Moses in the burning bush incident. Ruth makes a decision of faith. 
She chooses to believe in the promises of God and return to the land of Yahweh. And it's clear that what she has on her mind uh, is, and she mentions herself, uh, that she has God in mind. She mentions twice in her response. She stakes her very life in it. For Ruth, turning to God was worth more than anything else life in Moab had to offer. Her decision may uh, result even in forfeiting marriage or children forever. Uh, There's a deep connection to the Christian walk in Ruth's decision. Uh, Because in order to become a Christian, we must count the cost. Uh, We must choose between the world and Jesus. We must decide to pick up our crosses and follow Him. We must look at what the world has to offer and say that it is better to have none of these things and have Christ than it is to have all of these things without Him. In the Old Testament, the land and the people was where God was. But that time foreshadowed Jesus Himself, the Word made flesh. The house of bread, Bethlehem, would eventually produce from a family the very bread of life, as we read about from John 6 earlier. A few applications for us this morning about these verses. First, cling to the promises of God the way Ruth clung to Naomi. Christians must always cling to the promises of God. That's part of daily living as a Christian. The promise that our salvation is secure. The promise that we are truly forgiven. The promise that God will work all things out for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Uh, But belief in those promises are always put to the test when we face difficult circumstances. Uh, So perhaps you're going through a difficult circumstance even now. Let me just encourage you to follow the example of Ruth and cling to the promises of God. Ruth is is very much the opposite uh, example of the rich young ruler that we read about in Jesus' day in the New Testament. Uh, When asked what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus says, sell all your possessions and come follow me. And he goes away sad because he was very wealthy. He chose the riches of the world instead. Ruth forsakes the riches of the world and instead clings to Naomi to make her God their God. The second point, consider the cost of following Jesus. Uh, If you're here visiting and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, first, I'm just so glad that you're here. Uh, Know that you're always welcome uh, to join us, and and we hope that you do. Uh, I want to tell you that following Jesus might be costly for you. Uh, I don't want you to be fooled into thinking uh, that your life can stay exactly the same uh, if you decide to follow Jesus. Uh, The reality is it might cost or change your relationships. It might cost or change your reputation. It might mean a drastic lifestyle change. Following Jesus means submitting to his lordship as king. Uh, That's what it means to repent, uh, to turn from your sins. We use this language a lot in churches. uh, And... uh, what is kind of a technical explanation that I didn't want to get into, I'll try to summarize. Um, All of the movement that describes Naomi and Ruth 
turning back from Moab and going to Bethlehem is the same words that we would use for repent. Uh, So the movement itself uses the same language to describe a turning from rebellion, turning from sin, and instead submitting to God in faith as Lord and as King. Jesus said, if anyone eats of his bread, they will never hunger again. Life everlasting is found in Christ alone. So repent and believe in him. Consider the cost of following Jesus and cling to him. If you have questions about what that might look like for your life, please talk to one of the members of this church or talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk more with you about that. Remember that we love God because he loved us. It is his covenant love Uh, his covenant commitment that saves us from our sins. And our response, therefore, is to show the same kind of commitment back to him. Point three, third lesson for the Christian. This is mainly uh, the, the third paragraph, verses 19 through 22. Third lesson is this. It is better to come to the Lord empty than never at all. It's better to come to the Lord empty than never at all. Uh, This third paragraph records Naomi and Ruth arriving back in Bethlehem together, and they they receive a confused welcome as they enter. The text says in verse 19 that the whole town was stirred because of them. Uh, They were the talk of the town when they arrived. And I think that the reason for that is because how desperate they must have looked. Uh, Naomi especially, after mourning the loss of Elimelech and her, his, their two sons, Malhan and Kilian, to then just show up with Ruth, a Moabite. Uh, the women of Bethlehem seem to just hardly even recognize <laughs> Naomi. So they ask, is this Naomi? She's older now. She's grief-stricken. She has only uh, Ruth. And then Naomi responds in an interesting way. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And then she even says, don't call me that name, Naomi. Call me Mara. Why does she say that? Uh, Most likely you have a footnote explaining the meaning of Mara means bitter, and the meaning of Naomi means pleasant. And so she's basically saying, don't call me pleasant because my life is bitter. Call me bitter. Mercy comes still in the provision of food as they're prompted to return to the land with a new family member, Ruth. But without a husband to continue the family line, the threat of extinction uh, for Elimelech's family is, star- is, very much very, is still very much real for Naomi. Naomi um, has not denied once, as I've mentioned, that this is the Lord's doing in her life. Uh, She clearly credits him for the acts, uh, for this Job-like providence in her life. And it is just often true that the Lord uses difficult circumstances in our lives to to draw us to himself. Mercy comes, therefore, when we recognize our need to draw closer to him, and we turn and do it. For us today, our wandering from Christ, uh, distancing ourselves from God is akin to being in a distant land, uh, to depriving ourselves from 
his avenues of grace and his promises. But to turn and run to Christ is to place yourself under the powerful wings of the Almighty. It's to live eternally secure because you know that nothing in this life can separate you from his love, as Paul says in Romans. Two more brief points of application from these verses. First, have humility before God and return to him if you've been wandering. I I think in many ways every Christian can relate to Naomi because we all at times wander from the truth. We waver in our faith so easily. We distance ourselves from the body or from his presence by neglecting the very means that he uses to draw near to us. And Satan is really good at convincing us uh, in those difficult circumstances that God does not want us to return to him. That's when we need humility the most. Uh, That's when we need to remember God's promises the most. Sometimes the Lord makes us empty so that we have room to be filled with him. It's so easy for us to just crowd our lives with worldly idols, a concern for things like material possessions and bodily health, respect or fear of others. And we fill ourselves so much with things that are absent from hope in God that we need to be brought low to make space for anything else. Have humility before God and return to Him the way the prodigal son returns to his family. Second point of application, trust in His sovereign power over all of life's circumstances. Trust in His sovereign power over all of life's circumstances. This goes back to the initial question I asked. I think for the Christian, the answer should always be 10. God is very involved in my life. He is always working, whether or not I am aware of it. And that's very much how we leave the story of Ruth this morning. There is a tension. Uh, The story has not resolved yet. The entire entire story of Ruth, as we'll see in the coming weeks, shows how God can use uh, even affliction for good. And the application for us, therefore, is to trust Him and rely on Him no matter what. Now, you might be asking, how can God possibly turn Naomi and Ruth's lives around? Well, friends, that's the point. God uses situations even so desperate uh, to display His power and to work out His promises. But to answer that question, you'll have to wait and see. Even in providence, as bitter as what Naomi and Ruth face, there is a glimmer of hope in this passage. For example, the chapter began with a famine, and it ends with a harvest. A family forsakes the land of promise at the beginning, And then at the end, Naomi returns with a Moabite woman who shows covenant faithfulness to her, along with a clear understanding about the Lord Yahweh himself. There is tension that remains in the story. What's going to happen to Naomi? Is there any hope of her family continuing? How can there be in her old age? As for Ruth, what hope is there for her in Bethlehem as a Moabite widow? Those are the questions that will be answered as the story continues. But as for the beginning, in this fortune of Naomi and Ruth, we're reminded that the Lord uses bitter circumstances 
to draw us back into the comfort of his promises. So brothers and sisters, cling to those promises today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning because you have told us in your word that for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, you work all things out for good. Lord, you tell us in your, in your word at various uh, places that you use afflictions and sufferings uh, to produce steadfastness and endurance and hope in our lives. And you say that that hope will not put us to shame. So, Lord, we pray that in all circumstances we would trust in your sovereign power. Lord, would, we, would you be glorified in everything we do? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.